It's been a while since we talked about biostatistics and bioinformatics on this podcast. So I thought it could be interesting to talk to Jackie Buros. And that was a very good idea. She'll walk us through examples of Bayesian models she uses to, for instance, work on biomarker discovery for cancer immunotherapies. She'll also introduce you to survival models, their usefulness, their powers, and their challenges. Interestingly, all of these will highlight a handful of skills that Jackie would try to instill in her students if she had to teach Bayesian methods. The head of data and analytics at Generable, a state-of-the-art Bayesian platform for oncology clinical trials, Jackie has been working in biostatistics and bioinformatics for over 15 years. She started in cardiology research at the TIMI study group at Harvard Medical School before working in Alzheimer's disease genetics at Boston University and in biomarker discovery for cancer immunotherapies at the Hammer Lab. Most recently, she was the lead biostatistician at the Institute for Next Generation Healthcare at Mount Sinai. An open source enthusiast, Jackie is also a contributor to Stan and R. Stanarm, and the author of the Survival Stan Package, a library of Stan models for survival analysis. Last but not least, Jackie is an avid sailor and skier. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 39, recorded January 14, 2021. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbayesstats.com. That's learnbayesstats.com. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive Bayesian swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash stats. Starting at 3 euros, you can get various benefits like their private LBS Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash stats. Thanks a lot, folks. I'm very grateful for any support you can bring me. Let me show you how to be a good breezy and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen. Maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming. How would I know unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like I'm Richard Feynman? Hello, my favorite Bayesians. I'm proud to say that this episode of the Learning Bayesian Statistics Podcast is brought to you by Tidelift. Tidelift is making open source work better for everyone, users, companies, and core developers. Make sure to listen to their dedicated segment during the show to discover how they help open source software. And by the way, if your company wants to support this podcast, raise its brand awareness, or put its job ads in front of the right people, just get in touch with me and we'll see what we can do together. A quick note, because I just entered LearnBase Stats into a podcast contest to raise awareness and help more people discover it, and I can feel that you really want to help your favorite podcast win an award, right? Well, the good news is that you just have to click on the nomination form I put in the show notes and enter the LBS Apple feed, which is conveniently learnbasedstats.com slash apple, 
in the best podcast of 2021 and best tech podcast categories. And that's it, you're done. And I can assure you that Thomas Bayes, Pierre-Simon Laplace, and myself are very grateful for your support. Speaking of gratefulness, I'd like to thank my brand new supporters on Patreon, especially those in the full poster tier or higher. This time, I'm speaking of the great Adam Smith and Wilker. Yes, this is the same Wilker as the one who wrote Bayesian Statistics of Runway, or the one who was in episode 16 of LBS. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate it. Now, let's talk five stats and survival models with Jackie Burroughs. Jacqueline Burroughs, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you very much for taking the time. I'm really happy to have you here. Well, we'll dig, of course, a little deeper into your background in a second, but yeah, always a pleasure to host a stand developer and talk about the fascinating field of biostatistics. Let's start by your background. So how did you come to the science and biostats worlds? My stats world started very young. My mom is a statistician mm. and worked in marketing science, market research. Mm -hmm. And so we spent a lot of time around the table growing up talking about user preferences and product mm. design and cereal boxes and Coca-Cola <laughs> bottles and should they be square or round and <laughs> how would you test the pricing of this? And so I sort of grew up helping her and working with her on doing data processing or converting formats from a young age. When I went to Dartmouth as an undergrad, I was interested in going into medicine, and I heard a talk by C. Everett Koop about mm -hmm. how the pendulum of the greatest impact on global health is swings from being public health to medicine and back to public health. And there are periods of time, particularly we see this now, where public health can have an enormous impact on health outcomes and other times where medicine can have an enormous impact. And this really motivated me to think about how to apply these more advanced statistical techniques to medicine. Mm -hmm. And that's really where my interest started. And when I started to look at the clinical trial data, I took a job doing data analysis and working in, in the execution of clinical trials. And it really shocked me to see thousands of patients of data, you know, patients put their lives on the line, put their health at risk to collect this data in a controlled experiment. Mm -hmm. And all too often that data would just sit on the shelf and be used for one analysis and then locked away in a box and, and never looked at again. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my work was trying to extract more value out of that clinical trial data and using some of these Bayesian techniques that I had heard about and learned about growing up and applying that to the analysis of this sort of historical trial data and eventually EMR data as my career advanced. That's interesting. Yeah, because you really went first with the stat hat. I'm wondering then, how did you cut up with, I'm guessing, intensive biological or biomedicine knowledge that you need for the modeling you're doing these days? My undergraduate studies were partly in biology and also in computer science. Mm. So those were my areas of focus. And <laughs> as I was working, I work with a lot of clinicians and researchers, sort of applied statistician and physicians. As I'm walking through the data with them, they would have hypotheses about, oh, look at how this muscle is moving here. You can tell that this patient is not going to be doing well in the future. 
And so a comment like this would motivate me to then go back into our archive of digital images, encode the like the way that the muscle is moving through analyzing the, the pixels, and then scope out an analysis to actually test that hypothesis. So a lot of sort of interaction with subject matter experts, and then a lot of self-motivated research keeps me current and keeps my interest level engaged in the analysis. Yeah, yeah, I can guess that it must be fascinating research and topics. That raises a question for me that I will ask you at the end because I think it needs the context of what you're doing. So actually, before focusing on what you're doing, can you first quickly define biostatistics and bioinformatics for us? And yeah, basically, what are the main topics and characteristics? Sure. So... Biostatistics, I think of as a general class of statistical methods applied to the study of biology. <laughs> and in one version of it is a very large umbrella that encompasses all things from clinical decision making to clinical trial analysis yeah. to possibly as far reaching as something like an ecology type analysis. But more conventionally, mm. it's taught in public health programs, like masters of public health programs, and really kind of describes a focus on a clinical trial program or statistics for medicine mm -hmm. and very concerned with clinical trial design and sample size type analyses and some of the regulatory concerns that come into place. Now, bioinformatics is analysis of more large-scale biological data. So this is going to address challenges, particularly with genomic data and other multi-omic data sets. And bioinformatics has different set of challenges, partly due to the scale of that data, just the computational resources to process it, and computer science type skill sets, but also the complexity of data. And there are unique statistical questions, uh, multiple testing, adjusting for the volume of tests. For example, if you're running six million regressions, you're going to get a lot of false positives there mm. if you're using a p-value filter. <laughs> and so yeah. there are concerns that are very specific to bioinformatics that aren't as critical in the general biostatistics, more clinical trial framework. And a mm -hmm. lot of the steps that are normally considered sort of data processing, such as calling genomic mutations, actually have statistical models beneath them. And so knowing how that data is collected and a lot of that study is all under the umbrella of bioinformatics. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. That's clear. And so do you personally do more biostatistics than bioinformatics or the other way around? Or maybe just you do both? So my interest is actually right at the intersection of these two fields. Mm -hmm. And particularly as it relates to oncology is a field that is rapidly incorporating genomic data into personalized medicine. And one of the challenges in the field is that the bioinformatics folks don't think about the complexities of, you know, the rich clinical data or how the data were collected or the impact of the clinical trial design or the way that the patients were sampled on their analysis. And at the same time, the biostatisticians have a rich knowledge of the clinical data, but they don't frequently incorporate the genomic data into their analysis, except at a very sort of simplistic level. And I think that there's a lot of value to be gained by incorporating the genomic analysis into 
a modeling framework that is aware of the clinical characteristics, mm. you know, incorporating, mm-hmm. say, survival modeling into the genomic analysis and having knowledge, for example, of when the sample was collected. In a lot of the mm-hmm. genomic analyses, the, the sample was collected three years before the patient was enrolled in the trial, and other subjects were collected right at the time of the trial. And so the characteristics of those two samples may impact how the typical bioinformatics analysis would just ignore those complexities and sort of blindly analyze the data using some black box logistic regression. And actually, a model that's aware of those complexities, you know, has a lot more value in finding the signals from the noise. Hmm. You're setting that up pretty neatly here for me. That's great. Like, we already have some sprinkles of generative models, survival models, etc. I think that's a great teaser to what we're going to talk about. <laughs> yeah. So actually, you hinted a bit about that, but I'm wondering, and that's a question I always ask my academic guests, which is, why are Bayesian stats useful in this field? And how Bayesian is the field in general? So... I'll answer first why I think they're useful. And the first is that there's sort of two aspects of this analysis. You sort of mentioned this generative modeling that we want to model the complexities of the data and account for some of the complexities because we're dealing often with much smaller sample sizes than we would like. We have a lot of data per subject, but often very few subjects. And so in order to extract any meaningful signal from that data, we need to encode sort of prior knowledge, expert knowledge, and the structure of the data into the way that we're modeling. Hmm. And and Bayesian stats provides a very principled way to do that. So we can encode prior knowledge about which genes are likely to be involved, and that helps us to filter out some of the signals that we're getting, even from smaller samples. And the second utility of Bayesian stats is that it enables communication with the biological community and the clinical community on a scale that they're used to working on. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to interact with subject matter experts and really get the most utility out of their knowledge. Mm-hmm. And the easiest mm-hmm. way to do that is to be able to sort of speak their language and show them simulated patients. And does this look realistic? What would you expect to happen for this patient? And incorporate that into the model. Mm. One of the challenges of Bayesian stats in the field is that the simply the scale of data makes it very difficult to implement. You know, Bayesian stats works pretty well at the level of hundreds of parameters or thousands even, but not at the scale of millions, right? And so hmm. that's one of the challenges of applying Bayesian stats in the context of, say, like a genomics analysis or multiomics analysis. But hmm. I think that the field is getting there and we're putting the tools in place to be able to apply this at scale. And that's very exciting to me. Just specifically about that part, the scaling of Bayesian parameters and so on, you're saying that the field is getting there and yeah, I have the same assessment, but why are you saying that? Like, can you be a bit more specific for listeners here about what makes you optimistic for that part and which developments are you most excited about? There's sort of 
several categories of advancements. The first is sort of within chain parallelization efforts that are being implemented in STAN now. Mm -hmm. And I think that has a good possibility of making it at least feasible to start running these types of models at scale. And there are other enhancements in that category, whether it's in-la or approximate approaches Mm -hmm. or GPU type analyses. And I think there's a lot of work being done in that area that enables this. The second is the sort of statistical side of how do we get useful inferences out of this many parameters. I know Aki is doing a lot of work in sort of Bayesian PCA type analysis and Prajpred and his projection Mm -hmm. trying to figure out the minimal set of covariates that have explanatory power to recapitulate the model. And I think that a lot of people are working in the field on the sort of two sets of these problems, both the sampling efficiency and being able to fit the model, but then also thinking about what does a useful set of inferences look like for parameters at this scale. This is definitely super interesting and yeah, inspiring indeed. I actually had Aki on the podcast a few episodes ago. It was for episode 29, if people want to refer to that one, because we indeed talked about the ProSpread package, predictive selection of variables and so on. And this is super interesting. Also, an area that I'm interested in, in digging a bit more in the future, hopefully. But yeah, all the advances you're talking about are really promising. Also on the Python side, on the PyMC side, it's something we're really focused on too, like being able to run on on GPU, having this very pronounced parallelization of chains and so on. Uh, This is something also like, for instance, with the JAX backend of the renewed Theano package that we're working on, it's also something Mm -hmm. we clearly have in mind. And so... Yeah, I would agree with you there that this is a good sign. It's really good that both the Stan and PyMC team are working on that because, well, hopefully that means very good collaborations and projects will come out of that. So yeah, Mm -hmm. that's encouraging in a time where (laughs) people may be a bit uh, grim. So (laughs) that's good. (laughs) (laughs) To get back to my original question about the field, basically how Bayesian is the field you're working on right now? Yeah, as you said, Bayesian statistics are useful on the subjects to work on, but there are some difficulties, as you said, too. So, yeah, basically, what does that mean concretely for people, for researchers in this area? So the general biostatistics field is not very Bayesian. There are pockets where I think it's widely adopted, particularly in areas like adaptive clinical trials and Mm -hmm. some of the more like exploratory analyses. But in the general clinical trial analysis, it's still considered a sort of outlier, like a novel method. But I think that the field is coming to accept it, and it appears to be a growing trend. At the same time, I think most of my interactions with physicians are very valuable because I think physicians are sort of natural Bayesians, right? They're constantly updating their mental map of the clinical landscape and which drugs are there and mm-hmm. incorporating the new knowledge that's coming out and their experience with patients over time. And so I think that as we're looking to a more personalized medicine future or a future in which we're using the data more strategically to make clinical decisions and supporting physicians in those decisions, I think the future there will be more Bayesian than it is now. And so that makes me very optimistic 
And there are certain limitations right now, particularly in cancer and oncology, huh. of relying on frequentist methods, uh -huh. particularly when we see in an area where we're constantly defining these subpopulations of patients to respond to a particular drug or have a particular uh -huh. mutation that we're going to target, we have very small sample sizes. And huh. we can't rely on having a perfect pristine patient population yeah. with no prior disease and no prior yeah. treatments for each one of those. And so I think for that reason, the field is a lot more receptive to these methods because the use case is so pressing and the need is so urgent. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely spot on. I think so the fact that physicians are yeah, natural Bayesians, as you say, <laughs> like maybe they don't know that and they don't even know that they are applying Bayes theorem all the time, but yeah, I can clearly see that it's just the nature of what they do is inherently Bayesian. Mm -hmm. Like they are operating under a lot of uncertainty and small data and noisy data and so on. So, I mean, it's really what you do. So that's definitely very interesting. And that reminds me, the activity is completely different, but I recently read a book by, I think, Annie Duke, which is called Thinking in Bets. She's a, a poker player and, and talking about how the thinking that you apply in poker can help you in, in life. The key is like to think in bets and to make better decisions. Mm. And I was surprised by the fact that what she described in the book is like purely Bayesian concepts, like purely Bayesian, but she never cites, you know, the word Bayesian because she's not a statistician. So I don't think there is all this context in her book, but it's like, it's really striking to see really Bayesian thinking getting applied there. And I can really see that happening in, in medicine. So this is definitely fascinating. And I recommend this book for any people interested in it. Actually, do you remember how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods? And did you find them attractive right away? From what you said, I'm guessing that maybe your mother introduced you to these methods, but maybe it wasn't attractive at the time. Maybe you were like, okay, if you say it's interesting, I believe you, but I don't really know. Or how did it go? <laughs> <laughs> so I think my mother introduced me to thinking about generative models, but not to mm -hmm. the methods. And, uh, yeah, okay. and sort of thinking about how the data might be structured, or in her case, it was a lot of individual beliefs, sort of latent classes of <laughs> subpopulations of customers. And that definitely influenced me when I started looking at clinical trial data. I very clearly remember the trials that I was working on. It was a drug for patients with heart attacks with cardiac MI. <laughs> when we looked at the data, there was a subset of patients that had a very high rate of bleeding and almost no benefit from the drug. These were patients with unstable angina who did not have a severe heart attack. <laughs> and the patients with acute MI saw a huge benefit from the drug. But <laughs> in the context of that clinical trial, this was not a pre-specified analysis, and the trial sponsor had veto power over what we were allowed to publish. And so this was something that the physicians I worked with felt very strongly should be made public, and clinicians need to know this. A patient's safety is a factor, and yet they actually had to sort of break the veto and break the terms of their contract in order to publish. And so the need to model the underlying sort of heterogeneity of patients, the sort of hierarchical type analysis or multi-level analysis is something that motivated me very early to get involved in Bayesian stats. You know, doing this through frequentist methods is very tricky and error prone, and the inferences are not always very stable. But 
doing it through a Bayesian method was a very powerful technique. I remember reading a book called Applied Longitudinal Data Analysis by Judith Singer. And I wrote to her very early when I was working at Harvard and said, can I work with you? Can I come just like pick your brain? This is so interesting. And so that was my first introduction to sort of using this type of analysis more actively. Yeah, so you entered patient stats really from the practical point of view, and it was more than the theoretical side. It was like, oh, this is really what I need for, for my project, and, and that's useful because this and that, and, and it was not really like something that was coming from a philosophical standpoint or stuff like that. It was really something very practical. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. There was another analysis in which we had continuous Holter monitoring data for patients on their drug mm -hmm. and then following their heart attack. And we were not using that in the analysis. So I was looking for ways to incorporate this kind of longitudinal data. And so it was really over, you know, a desire to model the data and do the analysis to use the richness of the data in the analysis mm. that caused me to go down this path of first longitudinal data analysis and then sort of hierarchical analysis more generally and then to a more generative modeling approach and a Bayesian analysis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that right now. Just before, what's your favorite technical stat when you're working with uh, patient models? So I actually have sort of two separate stacks, depending on what I'm doing for sort of an ad hoc analysis or an analysis that I don't expect to be repeating multiple times. Mm -hmm. I'll use like an R-centered stack around command stand R and tidy bays and ggdis and R markdown documents publishing in that line. In my professional role right now, we're building up a library of models to apply mm -hmm. for industry use. And there, mm. I prefer to use a Python stack. And so here, we're using command stand pi. But mm -hmm. then we have sort of a more object-oriented approach of implementing the models with their own ability to simulate data. And then there, we make heavy use of RVIS and NetCDF formats. Ah, nice. And so I actually have sort of two parallel stacks depending on the project. And I find that there are actually a lot of similarities between the two, right? The difference, yeah. at least for us, is that the, our Python stack is more productionalized. Yeah, I can see that. I'm more on the Python side of things because I use, I use that mainly. And yeah, I can see why <laughs> yeah, using an object-oriented interface for reproducible and installable packages is very interesting. This is indeed also something that we in the team love, clearly, so I can really see that. <laughs> but I'm wondering, how did you become so well-versed into both uh, languages? I mean, because you know how to do that in R, you know how to do that in Python. You seem able to like to switch between the two stacks pretty easily, so I'm really impressed. How did that happen? I mean, partly it's just exposure. I mean, I've been working in R-centric analyses in labs that use R very heavily, and I've developed packages in R. And then I also worked at the Hammer Lab, which is very heavily a Python sort of lab. Mm -hmm. A lot of our genomic analysis tools were developed in Python. We open sourced a lot of tools mm -hmm. for handling the mutation data. 
Mm-hmm. And so there, it made sense to develop tools in Python in order to interact with that team better. And part of this, I think, is that my interest in stats and in computer science means that I'm sort of fairly comfortable just diving into a new, you know, software, a new language and trying to learn from it. You know, tools like Airflow are great for running models at scale and, hmm. and sampling many times and summarizing over them. But that's a tool where, you know, its core language is Python. And so being able to just jump in and use that is very helpful. No, I definitely agree with all that, but I'm still very impressed. That's really amazing. I don't see that being that common, at least in academic fields that I know of. So, <laughs> I mean, that's really impressive. I'm really glad you're using RVs, by the way, when you're working on Python stack. So thanks for that. And have you tried already uh, using the inference data format, like for multidimensional data, stuff like that? Yeah, it's a standard part of our pipeline at Generable. The format that we're using to sort of archive our model fits And one of the nice things about that structure is that it keeps all the pieces of your model sort of in one object and it supports a more robust Bayesian workflow because Mm -hmm. your priors and your posteriors and your predicted values are all kind of stored in the same context. Whereas in R, you kind of have to keep track of all these pieces and have a well-organized script for working with your model. Yeah, well, that's great. No, thank you. Thank you for for the work on Arviz. We're, <laughs> we're finding it very helpful and maybe contributing to it in the near future. Yeah. And now, actually, I remember that I saw you on the Arviz GitHub and some issues. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely remember that. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. So thanks. <laughs> I, I should isolate this snippet of the episode and put that in the Arviz readme, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. No, but no, that's great. And yeah, I love uh, inference data too. And all the points you raised are really why I find that super interesting and why we are using that design and that workflow and object-oriented programming in the PyMC Labs team. Also, it's exactly for these reasons. So that's great. For people interested in, in discovering that in the RVs team, we gave a small short talk at StanCon uh, 2020 that I put in the show notes where we present RVs, etc. So it could be of interest to you. If you've already seen it in English, we did translations in Spanish, in Finnish, and in French. So, yeah, you have multiple versions to watch. <laughs> no, but kidding aside, let's go back to your work. This is the technical part of the episode, the one I, I really like. So can you walk us through an example of a Bayesian model you use in your work, and that shows us how biostats can be helpful. For instance, something I thought about was, well, what does it mean to work on biomarker discovery for cancer immunotherapies? Because I saw that on the internet that you worked on that. I was like, okay, that sounds very important and interesting research, but what does it mean exactly? So biomarker discovery, it depends on the type of biomarker that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. The kind that I'm looking for, there are two. The first is what's called a predictive biomarker. This is something that predicts who's going to respond to a drug. So some drugs have sort of a companion diagnostic. You'll look and yeah. say, if you have this mutation, you're going to respond to this drug. Mm-hmm. And that's an example of sort of a perfect predictive biomarker. One of the challenges is that For a lot of the drugs, particularly immunotherapies, Uh there's no one biomarker that is going to separate perfectly the responders from non-responders. And the second problem in that space is that it's not always clear who is a responder and who is a non-responder. There's uncertainty around that. That's an estimate. 
And so really the search for predictive biomarkers is challenging for those two reasons. The first is that it's not even plausible biologically that there would be a single marker that would say your immune system is healthy enough to respond to this thing or your tumor has the characteristics that make it respond. And so Uh it's necessarily a statistical sort of modeling problem of scoring who's likely to respond and who's not likely to respond from a limited subset of clinical characteristics. And the second type of biomarker that we're searching for is a surrogate for outcomes. So we want an early indicator in the clinical trial space of who is responding to a drug and who's not responding to a drug. Typically, uh-huh. the marker that's used is longitudinal, the size of the tumor. So if your tumor is shrinking, the assumption is that you're responding to the drug. But uh-huh. that is not always well correlated with survival. That's, uh-huh. you know, the actual survival event that you want to avoid in cancer is metastasis. Uh-huh. And, you know, we don't have something that tells us, oh, you're about to metastasize or your tumor has more metastatic potential. Yeah. So those are the two types of biomarkers that I'm interested in characterizing. As a sort of statistical person, I'm working with researchers who are collecting data and proposing these potential biomarkers and supporting that search with the modeling efforts. That's sort of the scope of the challenge. And this is where being able to integrate genomic data with the clinical data is important because they're both related to this search. Okay, very interesting. This is something I'm very interested in, but I really don't have the theoretical background you have and technical expertise, but I read that actually the whole field of epigenetics, actually it was also something that could explain part of the cancer appearing and how they behaved. And so it was like there seemed to be this back and forth, like at least two main factors, which would be genomics, genetics, and the epigenetics, which would be like the environment and how the environment influences the way that the cancer appears and genes are, I don't know, expressed or something like that. Sorry mm-hmm. if, I, if I misinterpret things, but you will correct me. And so I'm wondering, is this something that you have to care about in this kind of project or like, how does it go, basically? So what you're describing is an emerging reality in the field that the genetic code alone, that this raw sequence is only a small piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah. That how that gets translated within each cell and then the sort of scope of changes across cells and the environment in which they're found, that the biological reality is a lot more complicated than simply this one, you know, string of DNA. And so part of what is happening in the field is that Instead of just genomics, we call it multiomics. So what we Mm -hmm. do is we collect data at the genetic sequence, but then we also collect data of expression. And then we collect data of expression spatially organized by region within the tumor and across different parts of the tumor. And Mm -hmm. then we collect data about all the different types of cells that are present. And so what you end up with, instead of one genomic data set, you end up with this multidimensional structure of genomic data Hmm. that is not just DNA, but it's DNA plus RNA plus protein plus the mixture of cells with a spatial arrangement. And so the problem has just become a lot more complex because (laughs) modeling that you have all different axes that you can use to traverse these data where, okay, here's my gene. It's not modified, but it's expressed differently. Yeah. Or yeah. this piece is turned off. And so it's the same as if it were modified. And so I need to treat these two patients as if they're similar, even though 
the actual cause underlying them is different. Yeah. And so what it has done is made the modeling problem just that much more complicated and interesting, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. I mean, this is definitely fascinating, but I can guess that this complicates things even more. Yeah, basically, if I understood correctly, it's just that before the scientific consensus was that, okay, this deterministic book that just says, okay, this gene does that, this gene does that. And now we're saying, okay, actually, no, <laughs> this, yeah. this is partly deterministic, but then you have the environment that comes and that influences the expression of genes. Mm -hmm. And I actually read about this very fascinating paper about two identical twins, and one of them went to space. And when he came back, his genomic data was older, if I understood correctly, was older than his twin that stayed on the Earth. And that was actually one of the proof that the environment had an influence on your genes. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And, you know, because some of these epigenetic changes can be inherited, it just complicates things that we thought we knew. Yeah. And of course, all of those things are dysregulated in cancer. So it is relevant to that. There's a nice chart of all the sort of classical biomarkers used to characterize a cancer and then across tumor types and whether up is good or bad. And it's just like in this context, it's good. In this context, it's bad. In this hmm. context, it's, you know, it depends on this. And so their biological reality is complicated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll say. Let me show you how to be a good baby. Hey, folks. As I told you at the beginning, this episode is brought to you by Tidelift, and I'm really proud of it. In a nutshell, Tidelift helps organizations effectively manage the open source behind modern applications, including the tools to create customizable catalogs of non-good, proactively maintained open source packages backed by Tidelift and its open source maintainer partners. For instance, PyMC3, that I'm sure you all love, is part of the Tidelift subscription. So if you are using PyMC3 in your organization, you can seamlessly and efficiently integrate it into your organization's software policies and workflows. So it's nice, right? So go ahead and check out tidelift.com to learn more. This is fascinating, but I also want to talk about survival models because you use them a lot. I, I could do a whole episode, by the way, about this, but you could come back on the podcast and talk about genomics and so on. But let's talk about survival models. First, are they useful in the kind of projects you were talking about? Or is this for a totally different projects? And like a related question and first basic question would be just... Can you introduce these models to listeners and why and when would they be useful? And also just want to point out for listeners that you work so much on survival models that you develop a whole Python package around them, <laughs> which is called Survival Stan. And I will, of course, put the link to the GitHub repository in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. So survival models are sort of underappreciated models, I would say. I mean, they're very widely used within biostats, but I find them sort of a beautiful model for the problem at hand. And one yeah. of the reasons I have been using them so widely is because they model sort of clinical data, you know, in a much better way than, say, a binary outcome of yes or mm -hmm. no, because mm -hmm. we often have censoring in the follow-up. So, mm -hmm. so let me go back and sort of define the sort of basics of the model, which is that what we're doing is we're estimating a time-dependent hazard over a follow-up period. So say mm -hmm. in a clinical trial, we're tracking patients 
over the course of their disease. And our dependent variable is a time to an event, usually mortality or disease recurrence. And the challenge in clinical data is that we don't observe that event for all the patients, right? We have a sensor in hmm. on yeah. the time to event. And yeah. so in the survival model, we're estimating this time-dependent hazard over the follow-up period. And then we integrate over that in order to estimate the cumulative hazard of having an event up to the time T. And so this allows us to introduce the censoring, to include the censored observations into that analysis. Hmm. So it's a really elegant way to address this problem. One of the challenges of working with these models is that traditionally they were sort of hard to work with because we had to find a closed form solution for that integration <laughs> over the follow-up period. And so depending on how you specify your model and which where you put the parameters, that can be easier or, or more difficult. And the nice thing about using STAN or other MCMC samplers is that if you want to, you don't have to, but if you would like to, and, and for certain models that we fit, we sometimes have to, we can just integrate over that follow-up yeah. period. So we can yeah. either use it one D integrator, or we can sort of approximate it, or, you know, there are a number of different ways to estimate that. And that opens up the possibility of building, say, joint models or more complex survival models with time-dependent effects or other things that are happening very directly, which is nice. Okay. And so is this marginalization, do you do that all the time to be able to run the model? Or sometimes you don't have to do that? How does it work? So for certain models, it's a lot more efficient if you have a closed form solution for that integrator, because your model will just sample more efficiently, right? Huh. <laughs> the auto diff stack in Stan is a lot smaller, for example, like they're just technically it's faster to run and it's perfect solution, right? So that's also nice. Yeah. And the integration approach is a lot slower, but it does give you flexibility to test out different areas of your model and a consistent framework for adding pieces to your model mm -hmm. without having to change the underlying sort of data structure or other components. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that means concretely that if you don't have a closed form solution to your model, you have to use the integration. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so that's why I'm guessing you wrote survival stand, right? It's to provide a wrapper around the capacities of STAN to do that, because I'm guessing that it must be harder to write a STAN program from scratch that does that. So what was the idea behind this Python package? So part of the motivation behind survival STAN is that the data structure required to do the time-dependent hazard and then integrate over it is mm -hmm. different from the standard data structure. So you often have to sort of explode your data out per time point, per subject, sort of mm -hmm. level data. In mm -hmm. survival model speak, this is sort of a denormalized form. So there's a fair amount of work to prepare the data for analysis, to generate the predictions for survival outcomes following the analysis, because the parameters you're estimating are not as directly related to the data you're observing in a survival model versus something like a logistic regression or mm -hmm. a normal regression. So the need for scaffolding around the model before and after you fit it in preparing data, those are very sort of repeatable tasks. And similarly, simulating data from some of these more complex models, you know, there's some work to implement that in a way that's more scalable. 
And so the survival stand, the way that it's written, it has sort of helpers for these common processing tasks before the model is fit and after it's run. That way you can sort of iterate on the stand code itself and reuse these components around it. Now, in our stand arm, there's an implementation called stand serve, which is survival models also implemented in stand, but in the R environment. And there, the approach is very different. It's not set up as sort of isolated functions that the user can piece together for their own workflow. There, it's a standard set of survival models where one function does the processing and the post-processing for you. Okay. Yeah, so it sounds to me that the main challenge when using survival models is dealing with this scalability issue. Does that relate to basically that you are interested in the whole time series of the events? So it's a bit like Gaussian process and Gaussian process are great, but they scale with the cube of the number of data points. And of course, mm -hmm. yeah, you, you can get into trouble with that. Is this a bit similar with survival models or am I missing something here? Yeah, that is the case, particularly if you're trying to integrate over the hazard. Mm -hmm. It is not the case if you're like in StanServe, for example, there we're using a sort of classical spline, like the Royston Parmar mm -hmm. splines that integrate directly to a closed form solution. So that's an example where you don't run into that scaling problem. I would argue that the harder issue in survival models is the fact that we don't observe the outcome directly that we're modeling. Yeah. We're often yeah. modeling the hazard. And what we observe is this time to an event. That's the cumulative hazard over that time period and sort of translating the model parameters to that scale. Even something like a posterior predictive check is mm -hmm. tricky in a survival model because you can't look at the individual patient level data. You know, you either observe the event or you didn't. And for censored patients, it's very hard to check if I yeah. was right for this patient. And so that's one of the challenges, I would say, hmm. in survival modeling. And similarly, translating a prior from an, a knowledge expert or subject matter expert back onto the scale of your parameters can also be tricky. You know, the hmm. prior I might get from a physician is my median survival time is probably around 300 days. And so I need to sort of translate that back to the scale of the model, which can be a little tricky sometimes. I see what you mean. That definitely is changing. I mean, the prior and posterior predictive part you mentioned, it's so valuable to be able to take your model and see what are the results on the observation space. It's a source of a lot of insights when you are modeling. But then when you can't have that, and I'm wondering, how do you solve that? How are you confident enough, you know, when you're working on such a model that, okay, I can say with some confidence that it's doing a pretty decent job, or at least it's not completely off? I would say here it's the same. I mean, it's similar to what you would do with other models. One area is to simulate data and check it on simulated data, and particularly to simulate from the priors and do the simulation-based calibration and sort of you know, I wouldn't underestimate the value of doing the standard workflow and actually doing each piece every time, right? Yeah. I think it's easy to sort of think you can jump ahead, especially if it's a class of models that you've spent a lot of time working with, but all too often you can get stuck doing that. Yeah. And so the second area is we can do posterior predictive checks, but we cannot do it easily at the level of a patient. So we can look at 
say the log likelihood or new type calibration metrics. But we also do a lot of work sort of looking at subgroups of patients, slicing the data into subgroups to make sure that I have good performance for the sets of patients for which I want to predict or I want the model to perform well. And then there is a rich history of working with survival models. So things like Mm. there's Breyer score and there there are certain Mm. scores that have been developed that adjust for the censoring process and other things. And those can be helpful as well, just in sort of calibrating your performance. Yeah, this is really super interesting. Something you said that interested me, at least intrigued me, was you said that sometimes you could be not interested in integrating over the time of hazard when using a survival model. And so I'm wondering in which example would you not care about that? So there are certain typical Cox proportional hazards model with a baseline hazard like where your hazard over time is a spline function and you know how to compute the closed form solution for that and your covariates don't vary over time, right? So you don't have what's typically called like a time-dependent effect. Your conditions are not changing over time for your patients and where your covariates, you know, you don't have a time-dependent beta or the follow-up time doesn't factor into your model. Uh Those models typically, it's pretty straightforward to use a spline or parameterization of your baseline hazard where you know the closed form solution. And there, the value of implementing the integrated version of the hazard is very low. You're not gaining anything by doing it the hard way, right? And so then, and so in that case, I would argue that it's better to implement it using you know, integrating the hazard up to this follow-up time and you can get your parameter estimates and all the utility of the model is available to you. But then there are scenarios where that's simply not possible. It's not possible either because you don't know the closed form solution, but one exists and we just, it's not worth the effort to find it. (laughs) Or it's not possible because what we often see in our data is we're incorporating longitudinal biomarkers like tumor size that change over the course of the follow-up period. Mm -hmm. And I want to update my hazard at every moment with my current estimate of what the tumor size is (laughs) or from other biomarkers that might be changing over the course of the follow-up time. And there, because the submodel is complex enough, I have multiple longitudinal models that are changing over time. It's not feasible to find a closed form solution for that hazard. And in that case, what we do is we fit a very flexible model for the hazard at each time point, given all the longitudinal biomarkers, and then integrate over that in the model itself. So if you can do it, the integrating with a closed form solution is better but it's not possible in all circumstances. So yeah. having the flexibility to implement those circumstances directly can be very powerful. Yeah, okay. I think I got that. Definitely survival models can become pretty complex from what I hear. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, did you happen to know uh, maybe a, a useful educational resource about survival models that uh, you could recommend to listeners? Yeah, the sort of classical book on it is Ibrahim has a Bayesian survival analysis book, and that's going to cover the range of survival analysis for Bayesian stats. It's not currently using STAN, 
but it's very comprehensive. Mm-hmm. And then someone I've worked with before, Sam Brillman, has written up tutorials on doing survival analysis using Arstan Arm, and also the joint model, which I briefly described, which I implemented with him, that has these longitudinal biomarkers that can change over the course of the follow-up period. Both of those are implemented in Arstan Arm. They're well documented there. And then Aki has a course on survival analysis uh-huh. that I believe you can see online. And that's another great resource. I would strongly recommend his courses. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to put all that in the show notes. If you can send me the link to these three resources after the show, that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Sure. Thanks a lot. Okay, so well, thanks for these resources. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate that. And I will definitely give it a look when I, I have to use survival models. And so I'm wondering, you know, based on all of your experience using not only survival models, but Bayesian statistics as a whole, you know, if you had to teach Bayesian methods to students who wanted to do biostatistics, what would be the essential skills that you try to instill in your students? Personally, I think being able to simulate data from your current knowledge of the data generating process is invaluable to being able to do this kind of modeling. Hmm. And I would couple that with spending time understanding the sort of logistics of how data are collected and, you know, engage in actually doing research. Hmm. Because one of the things that I benefit from is spending a lot of time in my early part of my career actually doing the data collection and managing teams that did this data collection and sort Hmm. of having a nose for what's likely an error and what's not. Claudia Perlick has a nice saying that the errors have much stronger correlations than the real signals, right? That th- mm-hmm. those are sort of deterministic processes. So sometimes your strongest signal can be a data artifact or some yeah. function of the data collection process. And so mm-hmm. I think that's probably underappreciated, at least in the junior people I've trained, that that's what I've seen. It's easy to get excited about those types of things. And simulating data is a set of skills that sort of tests your knowledge more than Mm. you think, right? Mm -hmm. And requires knowing the distributions and how to interpret a parameter. Is that even realistic value for this parameter in a way that you really can learn best by doing? So that would be a skill set that I would focus on. And then the second piece would be to replicate sort of famous analyses, right? Like Andrew Gelman's golf model, um, (laughs) sort of walk through these and actually look at the data and think about it from a generative perspective. Yeah. Yeah, definitely very valuable advice. I second that. So maybe before I ask you the last two questions, just one last question, because you've been very generous with your time already, but we're recording in January. So we're all still in the middle of the winter in the Northern Hemisphere. It's cold, it's dark, there is COVID, we can't do anything. So vaccines are coming, but we don't know how much time it will take. So let's try to be a bit optimistic and look a bit ahead. So I'm wondering which projects are you most excited about for the coming month? So we're working on a project that can predict trial outcomes for a large trial from a handful of subject data early in the trial. 
Mm-hmm. And part of this is using sort of priors from historical data sets. And a piece of this is a way to encode that prior knowledge into the model without sort of violating patient privacy and combining these data sets directly. I'm somewhat excited to be able to sort of see this thing work and put it into practice. A lot of my motivation is to actually use the models that we're developing and see them used on a regular basis. And that requires having a robust sort of technical stack. And that requires having a lot of pieces in place. So I'm personally excited to launch that and to actually have it be used. It's always a big moment for me when the models are out in the wild, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can guess that. Yeah. It doesn't happen as often as we would like, actually. So Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I imagine. Yeah, it's a, it sounds like a great project. So I hope you'll make all of that happen and make good models out of that. So, okay, it's time to close up the show. But of course, as you may know, before letting you go, I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. So the first one, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Mm-hmm. I would want to build a comprehensive model of like the tumor environment, right? Yeah. Including knowledge of systems biology, including sort of incorporating the, the current state of knowledge into all these things. That I think like in silico model of the tumor that we could see how perturbations might cause it to behave. This is of course a really difficult problem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I don't pretend that I'm capable of solving it with simply with time, right? But I think that we can get closer to it. That would be exciting to me. Yeah, I bet. Definitely a nice goal to have, at least. <laughs> And the second question is, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's hard. I actually knew you were going to ask this question and <laughs> I did not have a good answer to it beforehand. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I mean, it would probably be Charles Darwin, I would say, mm. not to be like <laughs> super cliche, just because I really admire the like dogged pursuit of his hypothesis over the course of a lifetime and challenging the status quo and doing it in a way that was respectful and sort of, you know, ultimately achieved his goals. So, you know, I really admire that. Yeah. You're actually the first person to mention Darwin for this question. So I don't think that's that much of a cliche, at least not in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I love that choice. Each time I often read books or listen to podcasts about this topic because I love learning about that and it's completely different from what I do for a living. So, you know, it's something that washes my brain when I work too much. And each time I read a book about the theory of evolution and so on, I'm like even more fascinated by that. You know, I'm like, this is so amazing each time I read about that and genomics and so on. So yeah, love your choice. If you have a place for the dinner, I'd like to be there too. Well, thank you very much, Jackie. This was a fascinating dive into survival models, into biostatistics and the research you do. That surely is an essential area of research. And it's very interesting to see how STAN and Bayesian methods are used and helpful to solve uh, hard problems there. And I'm sure I speak for everyone when I thank you for your precious open source work. As usual, I put resources in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. So thank you again, Jackie, for taking the time and being on this show. 
No problem. Thank you for putting this together and for the invite. I really appreciate it. Well, you bet. Come back whenever you want. <laughs> okay. okay. Thank you. Take care and uh, see you. All right. Bye-bye. This episode of the Learning Bayesian Statistics podcast was brought to you by Tidelift. Tidelift helps organizations effectively manage the open source behind modern applications, accelerate development, cut costs, and reduce risk with the Tidelift subscription so you can create even more incredible software even faster. Learn more at tightleaf.com. This has been another episode of Learning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman with MC Lars and Megara. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Andora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andora, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash stats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.